And they always would come back with like, well, you're a feminist or you're educated or you're independent or like the Western dress or whatever. And it was always compliments, but it's sort of a backward way of saying you've had to shed your culture in order to have these attributes. And I'd have to explain, I'd go, well, I learned to stand up for human rights or democracy or be a feminist from people who were willing to face tanks and torture for those things. Welcome to Pod Defend New Zealand. I'm speaking directly to all New Zealanders today. It's a political podcast where we chat about issues affecting Kiwis. Cases of COVID-19 to report in managed isolation in New Zealand. We talk to Kiwis from all sides of the political aisle. What has the government delivered? Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Steve O'Ely, and we hope you enjoy our show. Welcome to the final episode of Pod Defend New Zealand for 2021. For our regular listeners, thanks heaps for the support. For our new listeners, I'm Steve O'Ely and started this podcast with the aim of creating non-biased political conversation where guests actually have time to speak in depth about an issue that matters to them. I try my absolute best to remain neutral, but do challenge guests on certain issues. This month we have Green MP Golriz Graman. She's the first refugee to be elected into government. I talked to her about early life in Iran, how she and her family settled into New Zealand, we talk a bit about her career, and then spend quite a bit of time talking about immigrants, including whether they should assimilate into New Zealand culture or integrate. There is a difference. Again, thanks for listening to Pod Defend New Zealand. Firstly, Olris, thanks heaps for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Just to start things off, can you give us a bit of a background as in starting in Iran and how you ended up in New Zealand? Uh, Yeah, so I was born within about a year and a half or so of the Iranian Revolution, which was probably kind of billed as as one of the biggest popular revolutions in sort of living memory or living history, where Iranians all poured out onto the streets and then the opposition was to the Shah, the king. It was a sort of a, not really a constitutional monarchy, but an oppressive at least politically, a very oppressive regime with, you know, spying and torture chambers and whatnot, but a secular one. So compared to what we have now, it's that's always a live debate for Iranians. What the revolution was about was about democracy, and it was like this massive, mobilized population. But by the time I was born, it had been hijacked. So the Shah was overthrown, but we had the beginnings of a theocracy and a very, very oppressive one that's still in power today with the same torture chambers and the same violence. So that's kind of the context of my poor parents, who are these, (laughs) you know, early 20s, um, sort of a hipster, very political (laughs) activists, just got, you know, just living this nightmare in real time. And my generation of sort of Iranians being born into that. So that's kind of my early life. And then within a couple of years, we had the Iran-Iraq war, which was an eight-year war between the Islamic Republic of Iran and Saddam Hussein's Iraq. It was incredibly violent and long, sort of drawn out, and was funded and supported on both sides by the US, for example, which became a huge scandal. But in the middle of all that, you know, we had birthday parties and we had, you know, school and homework and playdates and so it was you know it's kind of that balance between people trying to maintain normalcy and people still doing you know mum doing her book clubs and at the same time not being able to work as a psychologist which was her profession because she didn't want to sit religious exams and 
eventually it all got a bit too dangerous in terms of the politics of it and the minute we could we kind of left and we came to New Zealand and claimed asylum we had to escape from um what is it transit because we we actually had tickets to one of the Pacific Islands and it was like when you're in transit you just have to put your case and yeah so we went through the refugee determination process here and did that you know. So you're stuck in the Pacific Islands until well, you we got your... we weren't in the islands. We were, like, in transit at Auckland Airport. You, you kind of buy a ticket to wherever you can go. But, of course, not every country in the world does, uh, recognises and takes refugees. So people quite often say stuff like, you know, why do people board those boats from Indonesia and Malaysia? Why don't they just stay there? And you can't. Indonesia and Malaysia don't recognise refugees. So you would become stateless. So you have to make it to a country that, that has that justice system, make the application, they get to determine whether you are in fact a refugee after quite a long drawn investigation and then you can get refugee status. But elsewhere in the world you can't. So, you know, so that's kind of what we were doing is getting here so we could make our case. And there was just that moment where you're still in transit and you don't know, you know, you don't know if you're going to have access to anyone that will help you. And that's a very live memory for me, that kind of couple of hours or whatever it was at Auckland Airport before we How could. old were you at the time? Nine. I was nearly 10. So, you know, like you still have those memories, but especially I think when your parents are going through that trauma and the tension is very clear. I don't think you can quite hide it from kids in those contexts. And especially having lived the decade that we had in, in Iran, you know, people disappearing and, and all that stuff was very live whether you're a child or not you could it was always sort of around the fear every time your parents left the house and like mum trying to check whether her she's abiding by islamic dress and shouldn't agree with it and it was just yeah so and just out of curiosity were most of your family and friends from iran are they still over there or have they immigrated as well yeah no they're mostly there um there was a few i have some cousins in in germany and austria respectively who one of them works for a Green MP in Austria. I don't know what their equivalent system is, but she's the main team leader in, in that office. And her person is also the human rights spokesperson, so we're trying to set up a meeting. <laughs> so, yeah, bit of a political family, and the rest of them are sort of rainbow activists. What did your dad do back in Iran? My dad was an agricultural engineer, so he was doing research into... We used to make fun of him for this, but it's actually quite noble. <laughs> but his research area was trying to derive plant-based energy. But the thing that the research was around was um, sugar beets, which is actually quite a common, like it's a totally well-established thing as sugar plant products and green energy or whatever but in those parts of the world. And it's, you know, it was cutting edge at the time, but it's such a funny, I just as a child used to find it funny that he was like all involved in sugar beets. <laughs> and it was, and, you know, he could never work in that again when we came here. The field just didn't exist. And he would have had to get upskilled in terms of language and getting his qualification recognized. So he never worked in the sciences again, which, you know, you would think is quite a shame. Yeah. And then what did your parents do when they came here? They came here and they kind of like immediately started taking odd jobs. I remember dad started to um, paint houses with a Turkish guy who was running a little business of like, <laughs> and so you know, it's like very different. Obviously you just do whatever you can. And mum started working at a local little cafe in West Auckland because we moved to Calston. So they just did whatever they could until they sort of saved a little bit. And as immigrants do, when you realize you're not going to get a job in your own field or in the status quo sort of job market, they 
their aim was to start a little business and they ended up doing a little takeaway shop or whatever in the food court at Rialto. They had a little restaurant downtown in Auckland, which was horrific because we don't know how to run restaurants. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then a little... Brutal gift. honesty. Yeah, well, that's what it is. You just go into anything and it's not a good idea. Um, but the last one, because both, both my parents are retired now, their last business was a little gift shop in Mount Eden Village in Auckland. So, Yeah. I think mum put her psychologist skills to good use and like getting to know the whole community and like people would come in and have like these long chats and it was, yeah, so. Yeah. We won't focus too much on your parents' career, but it is quite interesting how there's so many immigrants where they'll be, I mean, the most classic example would be someone driving a taxi. Yes. And they could be a qualified doctor back in their own country. Totally. I mean, that's, you know, that's what my dad was doing is just painting houses for a while. And it was such a weird, you know, he's doing cutting edge research into alternative fuels one minute. And then he's, but he was, I mean, given what we've escaped, it was never, there wasn't a sense of real bitterness. But I think that next generation or from the outside, when you look at it, you kind of go, wow, this would drive me crazy. Like, how did they survive? Knowing that I'm about the, the age that they were then and kind of going, I would lose all of my qualifications, my language, my community support, my social standing that, you know, we all pack animals we need. And it's, but they, yeah, they were willing to lose that for the freedom that New Zealand represented. My um, family's immigrants as well. We definitely came to New Zealand under a lot easier circumstances. They're from South Africa and my dad was a deputy headmaster and he sort of went back to being just a teacher sort of starting at the bottom, I guess. And I always look at immigrants, especially refugees, and how hard it must be to be a refugee because as South Africans, we, in terms of culturally compared to New Zealanders, we were quite similar. So it's like cricket and rugby and that sort of sporty <laughs> culture and stuff and barbecues and beers and all that. But even for them, we were so quite closely aligned with New Zealanders. The transition was really hard. And in those first years, the only people that really supported us were other South Africans. So for refugees coming from quite different cultures, it must be a real challenge. Yeah, I think that's right. But it's, it also really, really highlights for me the commonalities between us all. Because actually you come here and it might not be barbecues and beers. We always find it really hilarious as and immigrants always make fun of this about the Kiwi culture of asking people to bring a plate. And you're like, <laughs> like <laughs> Iranians, like hospitality is so important that you would never, ever ask someone to. But, you know, in New Zealand, that's that kind of egalitarian thing of <laughs> you're just hosting a gathering. You know, it shouldn't cost a lot. It shouldn't. So it's beautiful. But leaving all of the little things aside, we're still all kind of into having social gatherings and having food and, and kind of talking about similar things and doing similar things and people are raising their kids. and they have. So there's actually a lot, I think, that we do have in common in the end. And I think, you know, mum, for example, once she started to make friends, you know, there's that generation of feminists because they'd, they'd all been at uni in the 70s. And so, like, there's way more that cuts across different cultures than we would ever think to outwardly look at each other it doesn't and I used to kind of think about that in terms of my parents being kind of seen as being oh well they must be really basic you know simple people they must be traditional um, they probably don't have a lot of education or whatever and even in a really nice welcoming way that's still how people interacted with them because of their language 
skills and because people have an idea of what it is to be from the part of the world where you know being brown-skinned migrants frankly you know like where it's just kind of there's all these assumptions and they weren't very traditional at all but once you start to talk and connect and kind of strip away those assumptions it is very hard but there's also probably more that actually connects people than we'd all expect there's a couple of comments you said there that really hit home one was in terms of the sort of impression that they're simple and I think immigrants especially with a different language background and I'll be guilty of this as well is you meet someone from a different background where their English isn't that good and maybe they come across as not being that smart you know they're working as a taxi driver and their English isn't great you just assume that that's the best job that they could ever get but actually they're an agricultural engineer yeah Well, that's right. And, you know, and both of my parents were like avid readers and, you know, with their friends, they'd talk about issues and things all around the world and in in literature and whatever. But mum, you know, openly talks about this. For a long time, she had to interact with people as someone who was really interested in gardening and cooking because that's what she could talk about. I mean, that's quite heartbreaking, but she's kind of laugh about it. But that's what it is. Then you make other friends who are interested in gardening and cooking rather than like literature and politics. So actually your whole sense of self is undermined or whatever, but there's a lot to adapt to. But I think we all need to adapt, you know, like we kind of almost need to adapt to each other. As you say, like when you come to a person that seems like they don't speak English or they're they're a relatively new migrant, if we don't make those assumptions and just see what they do want to talk about and can do and whatever, it probably opens up those doors. Even your comment saying that your parents uh, were sort of hipsters. Yeah. I kind of associate the 70s hipsters as only being people from Western countries, like that kind of classic blonde hippie with the head um, down really long. I didn't even know that hipsters in the Middle East existed. Well, totally. My dad got married in bell bottoms. <laughs> Such a weirdo. And, you know, with the, yeah, like it's really into like Pink Floyd and the Beatles or whatever. And that's kind of the music that I grew up on. And it's kind of that thing of when I first ran as politician and I'd go into some spaces that weren't as used to, first of all, green politics, but also me, like rotary clubs and whatever. And people were great and supportive, but there'd always be, um, someone would kind of go, you know, oh, well, how can we help other migrants assimilate as well as you have? And I'd kind of always go, well, what makes you think I've assimilated? You know, so to speak, I mean, that word is horrific anyway. And they would would come back with like, well, you're a feminist or you're educated or you're independent or like the Western dress or whatever. And it was always compliments, but it's sort of a backward (laughs) way of saying you've had to shed your culture in order to have these attributes. And I'd have to explain, I'd go, well, I learned to stand up for human rights or democracy or be a feminist from people who were willing to face tanks and torture for those things. That's a pretty strong value. We do hear the voices that are the loudest, so it will be like the oppressive regime, the Taliban, whoever else, gets to kind of scream these points of oppression, but we don't kind of hear as much from just Middle Easterners, (laughs) so to speak. The 99%, yeah. If we look for it, those values are definitely there and they're incredibly strong and they're authentic. They're not Western values, they're human values. So, you know, we just all express them differently. We'll get to talking about the assimilation in more detail in a bit. I just want you to sort of give a bit of a summary of your career prior to politics and then how you ended up stumbling into the Green Party. Oh, very deliberately went into the Green Party. (laughs) (laughs) I went to university in Auckland. I studied law and history with no intention of becoming a lawyer. I thought I'd become a historian and I did a lot of gender histories. 
But I was, by the end of uni, really interested in human rights. I went and interned for Amnesty International and really quickly sort of realized, actually, they sort of think I'm a lawyer because I've got a law degree, but I don't actually know how to be a lawyer. That's not what law school gives you. You know, you actually need to go and learn how to practice law and make those rights that you're talking about effective and really apply them. So I very quickly realized I've got to kind of, I've got like, I'm like 80% there, but I've got to make that leap. I ended up going into criminal law specifically because I wanted to get court experience. But then also realized actually criminal law is the absolute front lines of human rights law in New Zealand in our system because we are talking every single day about police powers, search, detention rights, the sort of mighty force of the state versus probably quite a marginalized person. And so from there, you're talking about whether poverty is the point of discrimination, you know, whether the system is racist. And you're doing that every single day because you're getting you know, so many cases every day. So that was sort of my first love in terms of the law and in terms of human rights law. But I also knew that I, I did still want to go into that kind of more pure human rights based law. And I wanted to go international. And so I started to look at master's degrees and working for the UN and those two things sort of happened for me at the same time I applied for and got into an Oxford University master's program this yeah (laughs) I was quite (laughs) shocked yeah (laughs) it was um your parents would have been uh very proud yeah very yeah (laughs) it's quite quite funny explaining that it's human rights law so it's not well-paid (laughs) to people who ask but my parents were particularly into it so it's international human rights law It's quite a special master's program. It's for people, you have to prove in your application that you already work in a human rights-based legal field and they don't want you to drop out of it. They want you to come back and forwards from Oxford and to keep being in the field. So they only accept very few people, but everyone that you actually interact with in the course is in, like my friends were like based in Gaza, based in Haiti, based in, you know, and it was bringing you together, not in an academic way, you know, it was a very practical course, which I absolutely loved. But at the same time, I kind of got offered an internship with the um, UN International Tribunal for Rwanda, and it's a genocide tribunal, and it's very much a criminal court, but it's in this context of how do we deal with a mass atrocity that has happened that's essentially when something like that happens, or the systems of the place where it's happened are probably compromised or left in tatters. How do we make sure that we hold those most responsible to account and how do we help move that society back to a, a one where there is rule of law. Can you just give a brief summary of what the Rwanda genocide involved for people that don't know about it? So the Rwandan genocide was, I think when we think about genocide, we think about the Holocaust. This was a very violent 100 days and it was from May to August 1994. So it was after a few years of having conflict back and forwards between insurgent groups coming in from Uganda. Eventually, violence absolutely broke out after the Rwandan president's plane was shot down. And the idea of what the tribunal is trying to establish, essentially, is who in that government that was... Because there was a peacekeeping mission already in Rwanda because the government and the insurgents were fighting. The idea was that Rwanda was about to move to a multi-party democracy. But the president was killed and violence broke out. And the tribunal is trying to figure out whether the leaders who were in power at the time were responsible, to what extent they were responsible, who was responsible. And in doing that, you know, there's a lot of talk of like how premeditated it was, because obviously with the Nazi genocide, it was very premeditated. 
and this looks really, really different. And it was the first time we had something, we had a tribunal like this focused on genocide since the Nuremberg trials. And, and in the end, there was a responsibility found for a lot of the leaders and the discussions around where this racial tension came from and where, or the ethnic tension between Hutu and Tutsi in Rwanda, Hutu being the 80% sort of majority and Tutsi being a, a, a minority came from and whether it was a colonial imposition or what happened. But none of those questions are necessarily answered in a court. So people were charged and found guilty and they remain in prison now. And, and just out of curiosity, is there a movie about it? Yeah, well, there's um, not about the trials per se, but there's Hotel Rwanda is probably the one that comes. Oh, right, yeah, the genocide. So, yeah. yeah, there's there's other there's other movies, I'm sure, but that's the like really big one that. Yeah, I think that's the one I was thinking of. There's there's also Last King of Scotland, but that's about Uganda, which I'm pretty sure is the neighbours. Yeah, yeah, it's scary some of the stuff that happens in Africa. So we kind of um, went on a bit of a sidetrack there, but yeah. So you're doing the the work for the UN. I was an intern on a defence team for a guy called Joseph Nzererera, who was one of the political leaders at, at, during the Hundred Days, and, and before that as well, he's Hutu, as was everyone that was charged. And so I did that for a few months in Africa, and I sort of weirdly threw in being junior barrister to go and do this unpaid work, and that led to another position in the Hague briefly and then back to the Rwanda Tribunal working as a legal advisor on the Simon Bakendi case which was another defence team and then I was kind of doing Oxford at the same time and then I got my real sort of you're an actual UN employee job which was at the Khmer Rouge Tribunal in Cambodia as a prosecutor. Actually living in Cambodia? Yeah. Yeah, so oh, yeah, I did cool. that for over a year, yeah. And then did that lead you into working with the Greens Party? Yeah, so when, I mean, I'd been around the Green Party for a long time and friends of mine were sort of involved in local body government and were done the Green Executive and whatever my flatmate was pre-going off to the UN, so I'd been kind of in and out of Green meetings. But once I came back, I, I decided to come back to New Zealand and kind of not be a stateless sort of floating around UN person forever because that's kind of what happened so it was the moment where I was like okay I've been away for about five years now on and off so I just need to make a call and I wanted to come back but I was also quite you know I really wanted to not come back and just kind of settle in and forget these are the things that I was working on so I got quite involved with different types of human rights volunteering and got involved with Action for Children and Youth Aotearoa who writes the child rights report to the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child I got on the Criminal Bar Association executive because you know and they do justice policy work and it just kind of made sense to also kind of stake a claim and kind of be like, yeah, no, I am actually a Green Party person and join. In the Green Party, it's kind of almost a running joke that the minute you join, we'll give you jobs. So you actually become really, really engaged immediately. So I, within sort of a year, I was convening Auckland province and then I was on the national executive and I did that, that for a few years through the sort of 2014 election and... I wasn't interested in running at all, just volunteering for four or five years before the last election that I ran in, or the first one that I ran in, yeah. Just remind me how you ran or which seat you were running? So we don't overtly run in seats per se, although you have to run in a seat just to get on the debates and get on, you know. It's nice to run in a seat so that you can organise volunteers around each of the candidates and have that local area of volunteers coming together and being motivated. But we run as a list-only party normally, or at least we did then and until this election. We had Chloe Swarbrick run for Auckland Central overtly and obviously win that seat, which was incredible. Huge upset too. 
huge. I mean, going from national to green is <laughs> quite a jump. Yeah, so that's kind of a very, that's obviously a really inspirational campaign and we'll probably do more of that. But in 2017, I ran in Te Atatū, but as a list-only campaign. And that was, you know, like different people had encouraged me through the party to run before, but I, I definitely didn't think I would get in the first go. You know, I was going to give it a real go. Um, I always do, but it was quite unlikely that you would. And someone figured out kind of quickly when I first sort of started telling people I'm going to run that if I was elected, I would become the first ever refugee. So just first generation to be elected to New Zealand's parliament, which became kind of an interesting story and became the defining story of my running. You know, it was kind of a surprise to me. I didn't think I was running as a refugee, but there was that moment of, you know, the fear of tokenism and what does this mean? And can you really represent this incredibly diverse group? And what does it mean if I want to run as a human rights lawyer and not a <laughs> But then the messages that started to pour in and the comments online, and it was kind of these two different worlds of absolute like love and support and excitement from all sorts of different communities and all sorts of places around the world. And then all of the hate and the fear and the villainization. So I realized really quickly that this actually means very different things to a whole lot of people. And that there has actually been a void of representation, which is why it means something and it evokes so many strong responses. It's a really interesting moment where you've kind of realized your job as a representative goes well beyond just policy. You know, it's kind of that lived experience. People need to see themselves and their representatives and that's okay. That's, that's kind of a good thing. Yeah, I think that's really important. Mm, yeah. So I think as lawyers, we forget that sometimes. <laughs> But I, I definitely have never, never forgotten it since. I announced my candidacy around the time it was January 2017 and Donald Trump had been elected in November 2016. So all of that was also coming kind of to the table and he was instituting a so-called Muslim ban, which wasn't actually about anyone being Muslim. It was just like picking countries in the Middle East and saying, you're not allowed in. Did you post something on Twitter about that? I feel like I saw a video I'm of you. I'm sure, Yeah. The video you would have seen would have been about when he was caging children. Oh, yes, I remember yeah. that. Yeah. It's really fascinating, kind of really leaning into going, well, actually, if I am elected and I'm the only person who has this particular type of story, and hopefully there'll be more of us, but, you know, there's a real sense of responsibility that you actually talk about that. You actually bring that to the table when you, if you need to criticize a policy or if you need to champion a policy that... It's okay to say, like, we are experiencing these different things as women, as disabled persons, as members of the rainbow community, and sometimes as a refugee or a woman of color, or, you know, and it's a strange moment, but you realize how much people actually do need to see it, and that's okay. I'm actually literally reading a book at the moment about refugees escaping from Mexico to the States. It's a fiction, so it's not entirely true, but there's so much fact behind it. Of course. And having followed this woman and her kid through the arduous journey to the border, and now they're crossing the border, they're hearing stories of people that they know that have been, the mum and the kid have been separated. Oh, God. It's amazing how people can lose humanity for other people and just see them as these other people and not actually stop and think, hang on. It's a lack of empathy, really. The inability to see if we were in that same situation living in a, you know, not very good country or things not going well in that country, that they can't see we would be doing exactly the same thing. Absolutely. And that's kind of, it's really hard to know how to break through that. 
But I think the only way we do do it is to keep telling our stories and sharing stories and kind of people can actually fathom kind of a human story where they go, oh, well, I related to that person and this is also their background. So it's a funny thing as humans that we need that. It doesn't happen with facts or figures. It actually only happens with those human stories that people remember and, and keep coming back to and sharing. So that's kind of what politics ends up being about at its best, I think. I think this leads in quite well to my next question, which is around the assimilation kind of things. And from your story and your family's story, people would celebrate that as a success in terms of refugees coming to New Zealand. For the people that don't necessarily like having refugees or think there should be a limit to numbers, there's a perception that some refugees come to New Zealand and maybe isolate themselves and don't assimilate. And we can get into what assimilation means because there's a wide variety in terms of what people might think. But there definitely are some people that don't seem to integrate as well into society as others and maybe a perception that some can be a burden. As someone who most likely is advocating for more refugees coming to New Zealand, how can we best convince the naysayers... I think it's it's good to acknowledge, and I, I always acknowledge first up when someone comes up with like, what about housing our own? What about feeding our own? What about, you know, that kind of very valid concerns for people here who are experiencing inequality or poverty or other hardship that turns into an attack on another marginalized community that might also need support. I find it useful to acknowledge that those issues are real and valid and absolutely need to be addressed. Like, yes, we absolutely need to solve homelessness and poverty in New Zealand and have more resources for mental health care and have, you know, all of those things. And actually we can. It's been as a result of deliberate policy decisions that have kept that resource from those who need it. We absolutely shouldn't, in a country like New Zealand, have homelessness at the rates that we have. We shouldn't be in the middle of a housing crisis. We shouldn't have such a deficit in mental health care. But those have been decisions that have been made that we need to solve, not at the expense of, you know, this handful of refugees that we take, because we're actually at the very bottom of the scale almost in terms of per capita refugee resettlement. We're far below Australia, which I think people are always shocked by. That's actually quite surprising, really. Yeah, it really is. And... The Green Party policy is to, over five years, bring up our refugee quota intake to 4,000. And that seems like a lot to people because at the moment it's 1,500. That is a lot in terms of that comparison. But even if we brought it up to 4,000, that would place us only just above Australia and still way below Canada, who who is the other country we always compare ourselves to as being like progressive and chill. (laughs) We're really, really far away from doing too much, which I think people think we are. That comes from some weird idea of ourselves. But ultimately, all of these facts don't really penetrate. I think acknowledging people's concerns helps. But then the next step is kind of telling these stories to actually have that human understanding. So it's not we're not talking about people coming here to try and take our stuff. We're not talking about, you know, if we're going to talk about our values and whether they're shared. Well, refugees are the people who've actually proven that they have a well-founded fear of someone like ISIS or the Taliban. Or, you know, homophobia or whatever it is. Like, if we're taking refugees from Africa, we're likely to be taking rainbow community members from Uganda where there's the death penalty for the homosexuality. And so if we're going to condemn things like that, then we actually have to be willing to do our fair share to make people safe as well. If those are really our values, then we have to look at that. 
or women's rights activists in Afghanistan are now refugees. And we always talk about what we hate about, you know, whether it's those misogynistic, extremist cultures and governments. But these are the victims of those governments. These are the real-life victims. And they actually do share our values. But then in terms of how we help people to integrate, which is the word that I would prefer to use because I think it's, it's then it's a joint meeting of, of our communities and, you know, we all change a little bit to adapt to That's each other. That's definitely a fair way of putting it, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, we all come together rather than one group having to, for example, shed their culture. It's about sort of acknowledging that all cultures have some things of value to share with each other, some points that we can criticise and engage with. And, and that's actually the best way of bringing people to kind of... And all cultures adapt. We're not set in stone. So last term, when I was one of the four women MPs who brought a bill to upgrade New Zealand's law around female genital mutilation which is a practice that happens largely in Africa and the Middle East. The, the reason we did that is because it was actually the communities that are most impacted by that cultural practice who had campaigned for it, for, for this law change. So it was, it was women and men from the Somali community, the Kurdish community, that they'd really identified the problem in the law that wasn't meeting their needs as activists who were trying to eliminate FGM. And we were just their voice in Parliament. It wasn't, that's how it works really well. Because you're not coming in and imposing something, you're just lifting the voices that are already within those cultures. And we all have, you know, and New Zealand has really, really high rates of domestic and sexual violence. We wouldn't want that to be seen as being part of our culture, as if we're all, <laughs> you know, but it's, we all kind of have work to do. And it's nice to see it as integration. It's um, a really good story that you told there about the FGM I have heard stories of people within New Zealand from refugee backgrounds where that has happened. And maybe there's a perception that it's only us established Kiwis that care, but it's really interesting that it's actually the people totally. from those communities that are the ones that, you know, try to make that change. Totally. That's the kind of change that will actually last because we're not threatening people with, you know, we're not degrading them, we're not dehumanising them, or we're not like calling them misogynistic. We're actually empowering the people within those cultures to go, hey, we need to address this. And as a first-generation refugee woman from Somalia or whatever, I want to change this and I'm going to lead on it. And so it's kind of, you know, it's that partnership that will work. It's the same with if we want to lift, you know, Māori or Pacific buy-in to the COVID vaccine, which we've found is a challenge in government because those communities just generally don't access healthcare in the same way and don't have access because the health system has marginalised them. It was about partnering with those community leaders that were actually very pro-vaccine and cared about their community's health to bring them all along. And it actually has worked. Now the Pacific community is the highest rate vaccination in New Zealand. So, yeah. Just to elaborate on the integration, and I'm glad that you said you prefer to use the word integration because I think assimilation very much means that anyone that comes from an overseas country is expected to shed their identity and become a rugby and cricket-loving <laughs> Kiwi who drinks beers and all that stuff. But I know from my own upbringing, being from a South African background, that even though our cultures are quite similar, even as a kid I remember just having a real pride as to where I'd come from. And I used to support the Springboks and be very much a proud South African little kid. And it took a while to... Once I got to adulthood and I've been a Kiwi for most of my life, I've slowly shed all that. But there are sort of certain things that you don't lose. Yeah, I definitely go crazy for the Rugby World Cup only when I'm not in New Zealand. 
Like, I have no interest in it when, it's, when I'm living here, but when I was living in Cambodia and that World Cup happened, that was in New Zealand and the first one that we won, I was like at every game. <laughs> like, why was I doing that? In terms of the integration too, is we very conveniently love all the aspects of other cultures that were brought in and the easiest one to compare to is food. Like when I was a kid, it was, you know, fish and chips and maybe Chinese and if you're lucky, Indian. And now there's such a wider range of takeaways and stuff that you can get and everyone loves that. If we're going to (laughs) accept all these people from different cultures, we've got to take the different parts. One area that does concern me with some groups, and it's not necessarily a refugee thing, it might be an immigrant thing in general, is the tendency for some groups to potentially isolate themselves. So to form their own little community within that town, which is fine. It's fine to have your friends from your own culture and stuff. But then there's a perception that some groups where they don't really integrate at all and they sort of become their own little community within New Zealand that isn't really interested in the outside world. Yeah, and I think, I guess if we don't like that, and, and you know, there's pros and cons, obviously, and, and it's also a perception. We don't know to what extent people are actually integrating or not integrating. We just see them as we walk past then they're hanging out in a big group or whatever and there's an assumption that they're not integrating but you know of course all members of that same little gathering will be going off to school and uni and work and they've got these other spaces as well so there's sometimes I think there's an assumption that people aren't integrating because of that visual sort of jarring thing where oh my god there's a massive group of people that don't look like me and they're constantly in that group what are they doing you know there's xenophobia in that assumption so I just want to acknowledge that and I think in Auckland it happened around when we were getting a lot of East Asian exchange students or international students sorry so suddenly there was a visual reality of all of these people that didn't look frankly Pakeha because that's what people are talking about when they're saying and they're not speaking English and it was like a knee-jerk reaction that's maybe natural but I think we kind of have to examine that and whether or not there is validity to the concern but if there is I think, again, coming back to that kind of idea of integration versus assimilation, because I think integration puts a responsibility on all of us to reach out. So I think if we don't want culturally isolated, closed off communities in New Zealand society, I think there's a responsibility for all of us to kind of make that adjustment and reach out and make sure that people are getting, you know, people are feeling included, that they in fact are getting what they need from all of our institutions Because actually, a lot of the time when people can't access things like healthcare or education that suits their kids or when there's been exclusion or bullying or a lack of understanding and access to what people need, that they do go inward and kind of start to provide that for themselves within their cultural communities, which is a shame because we as a broader society and community shouldn't have to isolate in that way. But I think those are sort of quite complex questions that we need to ask about why people aren't feeling like they can integrate. Nobody wants to be isolated in a tiny ethnic community. Everyone wants to feel valued and able to interact with all of society. So that's kind of a, I think that's a piece of work for all of us. And, but it's a really rewarding piece of work. Yeah, and I think some of the biggest naysayers will be the same people that never approach exactly. um, an immigrant in the street and never actually invite them around for dinner or try and make them feel welcome. Just to go back, and this wasn't originally a planned question, but one of the areas where people maybe get a little bit uncomfortable is New Zealand has quite a good reputation in terms of equality for women. And I know there's still always work to be done, but you know, in the scheme of the world, we're quite a feminist country. And I'm very interested in your perspective, given that you came from quite an oppressive Iranian regime. 
when you have situations like there's a school in Auckland where it's specifically for Muslim girls and they get taught, as far as I understand, the Muslim teachings and they're expected to cover up, from what I see from an outside perspective, is it's a culture that's telling them that they're less valuable than men and that they have to cover themselves up. How do you sort of feel about a school such as that? Yeah, um, I mean, I don't know what they're being taught. I also, because I wasn't raised strictly Muslim, I also don't want to comment on why the hijab is worn. I'm not, my understanding, I think we, again, we impose our view sometimes of what it would mean for me if I was told I had to cover up versus, you know, and I've heard from Muslim women that they find a lot of dignity and empowerment through wearing the hijab. Because I come from a place where it was imposed and Iranians had to fight against it. I, I just want to acknowledge that I have a very different <laughs> interaction with that part of Islamic culture that's not necessarily true. And it was imposed by a regime who was probably using Islam and religion as a point of oppression deliberately. A million women in Iran marched against the imposition of Islamic dress. And most of them were Muslim or would have identified loosely as Muslim. They just also understood that the government shouldn't tell you how to practice your religion or what to wear as a woman. And they did. They, they did that at the risk of torture and death and being beaten and tanks rolling over them. There is real Islamic feminism. But leaving all that to one side, I mean, I think we have to also question why we have a sense of fear and concern about one type of religious school, but not others. I have a real problem with religion and education mixing. And again, that's from my background in terms of coming from a place where that was imposed. And I am a huge advocate of secular education. But that should go across the board. So, I mean, obviously there's a lot of Catholic schools that will often not be teaching contraceptive access or whatever. Again, I can't even begin to imagine what people are being taught about women and bodily autonomy. Obviously, we've got abortion law rights, we've got all sorts of other types of women's issues that come under the religious umbrella if we're being taught about ourselves as women by any of, of those Abrahamic religions. And I think we have to question why we'd be concerned about one and not the other and take a principled stance about whether we want religion and education to mix or whether we have that concern and we're going to make school in New Zealand secular. Just to finish up on that religious education front, I think that's a very fair point. I think a lot of people get as comfortable with Gloria Vale as they do that school in Auckland. It's a complicated one when you talk about freedom. We're such a free country, but then if we're so free that then we allow potentially oppressive religious practices where, you know, women don't get the same rights as men. I personally would love it if we had a, a rule <laughs> where religion and education didn't mix and you could do your religion on the weekend and schools were purely secular but then you could argue that would infringe on people's freedom. Oh, well, exactly. So that's a broader conversation, and that's the worthwhile conversation. I think rather than singling out one religion as having a right to a school and not others, and again, that, that will work much better in terms of bringing our communities together because we're coming at it from a principled equal baseline to have that conversation. Just appreciating that we are running short on time, if you have one thing that you could achieve during your time in parliament what would they be my big thing is democracy so my members bill is on adopting the electoral commission's recommendations on how to strengthen mmp 
how to limit and make political donations more transparent because we're really, really concerned that New Zealand's democracy is kind of at the whim of big money if we don't do that and restoring prisoner voting. So it's kind of a suite of changes that are around democracy. One of the greatest things about our political system is that it's probably one of the most accessible and representative. So securing it would be my big thing. Awesome, Golra as well. Cheers heaps for your time. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for your time. That was Green MP Golriz Garaman. I found the conversation quite thought-provoking. She definitely challenged me on my perspectives on immigration, in particular that it should be a joint effort from everyone. I've had quite a bit of feedback from listeners that I should be giving my perspectives at the end. I try to remain as neutral as possible during the interview, but I do have my perspectives. I consider myself to be fairly politically neutral, but as with anyone, I do have my own opinions, and sometimes they'll be left-wing opinions, and other times they'll be right-wing opinions. I do think there are a percentage of immigrants and refugees not really making any effort to integrate into New Zealand society. I don't think it's one particular group of people, but the common theme seems to be a high population of immigrants in one area. I think it's easy for us to judge them. I know that when I went overseas, I didn't really make huge attempts to drop my culture and ended up hanging out mostly with other New Zealanders and Australians. There's no simple answer to the problem, but I think New Zealand's better off if people do integrate to a certain point. I think it's good that we embrace other cultures, but I think as a whole, young immigrants should be hanging out with Kiwis and, to a certain degree, becoming New Zealanders. They're still welcome to eat their food, watch their sport, and embrace their cultural traditions. But if they're not making any attempt to fit in with the rest of the population, I kind of think what's the point in coming to New Zealand in the first place? Everyone's open to their perspectives. I do agree with Golriz that we should be making more of an attempt to integrate that as New Zealanders embracing immigrants and making an effort to make them feel welcome, but it is a two-way street. On the issue of women coming from other countries and in their cultures having to wear face coverings, my personal perspective is the choice is a little bit of an illusion. In those cultures, I do feel that they've been brainwashed to a certain degree that they should be covering themselves. If you look at truly free societies, some of the best examples being the likes of Norway and Sweden, you don't see many truly free, educated women choosing to cover their faces up. I think showing your face is such an important part of human interaction. Reading facial expressions, seeing subtle changes in people's faces, and of course smiling. By covering up, we're not seeing their whole version of somebody. And if they genuinely prefer to be covered up, absolutely fine, we live in a free world. But I do wonder how much choice actually comes into making that decision. That's all for this month. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pod Defend New Zealand. I hope everyone has a wonderful festive season. Our first guest in January 2022 is going to be Mary Holm, and we're going to talk about our finances, which I thought was a fitting way to start the new year, as we all love to make some financial goals going into the new year. We'll see you next year on Pod Defend New Zealand. Bye for now. Thanks for tuning in to Pod Defend New Zealand. You can find us on Twitter at nz underscore pod or Instagram at nz underscore pod. If you're feeling extra generous, please give us five stars on the podcast app. Kia ora.